0: Hey folks, Brian here. I want to thank each and every one of you who has liked, reviewed, rated, and subscribed to Confessions of an Arcade Addict and telling your friends and everything like that. Please keep it going. I just recently went up over 500 likes on Facebook and I'm really, really grateful to each and every one of you. Now on with the show. Uh, When we last off in episode 29, I was debating on whether I was going to go to the arcade in Brighton. And after my godson uh, begged me to take him, after I was done doing home care for his mother, well, last Sunday, yeah, we went up there. Um, It was an okay trip. Um, Of course, things are a little different with the pandemic going on. We had to have masks on, and we had to wear gloves uh, to play the games. Of course, all that is to prevent the virus from spreading if anyone who is infected goes in there and plays games. You know, things like that. Uh, Like I said, they really took some good precautions as far as cleaning the games, keeping them clean, Um, and social distancing, although that's kind of hard to do in an arcade, it always has been, especially if you've got as many machines as the arcade in Brighton does. Uh, I was a little disappointed that some of the machines, like Robotron, were down for some reason or another, but, you know, such things happen. You know, these machines are uh, closing in on 40 years old now, most of them, and some of them are even 40 years old and older, like the space encounters which still works um so yeah it was a decent time I mean we only spent a couple of hours because I had to get back to uh finish my home care that I had started earlier in the day before I kidnapped my godson and we went up there to play games so we had a good time he had a good time which was more important you know I the only thing that was really of any note um I did put up a score of what seven hundred and ninety thousand on that funky scoring Hyper Miss Pac-Man, but then again some guy came in right behind me and straight nine the machine. Nine hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred seventy five points. <laughs> I was impressed and annoyed at the same time. <laughs> so yeah, it was a pretty decent time. You know, a good afternoon got to forget my troubles for a little while you know lose myself in some games and just have a little bit of fun and what's more important my godson had fun because with him being stuck at home yeah he's chomping at the bit to get outside and just do stuff instead of being at home all the time so when I asked him if he wanted to go of course he jumped at the chance uh, let's see what else is going on um, not too much else going on um, just playing you know, the various computer games I have um, <laughs> as a matter of fact my co-host for the other podcasts that I do um, he's been trying to get me into Star Wars The Old Republic uh, for a couple of years and well now that I have the computer to run it and run it properly I actually uh, loaded the game onto the hard drive uh, a couple weeks ago I haven't touched it yet um, I was thinking about talking to him and getting some, fun, getting some pointers and so forth about, uh, you know, where to go, what to do, that kind of thing. You know, quicker ways to level up your characters and so forth. Not to mention, I'm still not sure 100% on what kind of character I'm going to run. But, you know, there are plenty of uh, help... Videos on YouTube for The Old Republic and I was watching a couple of them and I was just like you know what I should just dive in and stop messing around but not quite yet Um, things at work are more or less on an even keel now which is good because now I'm not putting in like 46 to 48 hours a week and although uh, my paycheck's not going to be looking so good from this one coming up forward but at the very least I don't feel like you know my brain is like dribbling out you know from my ears and my nose at times because I'm so tired Uh, So, but aside from that you know just doing what I normally do. Um, Let's see I checked emails and messages on Facebook and Tumblr and Twitter and still nothing so once again if you have any questions about anything I've spoken about in the last 29 episodes or this will make 30 um, by all means get a hold of me Brian at gmail.com also there is a phone number for voicemails that number is 734-743-2433 social media is running and ongoing as we speak on Facebook, just do a search for "Confessions of an Arcade Addict." It'll take you right to the page. There's also a discussion page to go along with that, so you can commiserate with other people uh, who uh, listen to the podcast, and you can ask questions and you know get a little dialogue going if you so inclined. Um, let's see. On Twitter, my Twitter name is at arcadeaddict_b. On uh, Instagram, it's ArcadeAddictBrian, and Tumblr is tumblr.com slash blog slash Confessions of an Arcade Addict. So once again, there are multiple ways of getting hold of the show. And, you know, if you've got anything you want to say, as long as you're civil about it, have at it. And I'll read your email on the air or listen to your voicemail, and I will do my best to answer your questions. So anyway, let's move right along with the show. It's way late. (laughs) I probably shouldn't have started to record this episode, but, you know, once I get the bug, there's very little that stops me. So, let's get right into it. Top 10s. Top 10s. Atari 2600 games. (laughs) This was not easy. This is not an easy list to make. Uh, 10 of my favorite 2600 games and 15 honorable mentions. I could have gone probably as many as 30 honorable mentions, but 15 seemed to be the right number. Um, Ever since the Atari 2600 came out in 77, and the various department stores would have uh, demos of it, and of course that would lead to me getting my own in 1981. I've played dozens if not hundreds of 26 games uh, ever since I could get my hands on one and having resources like the video connection and you know KB Toys which sold 2600 cartridges at a reasonable price um, these kind of resources led me to um, actually they allowed me to be uh, discerning with my choices of games um, because I I said it uh, when I talked about the 2600 and my experiences with it, that when it came to the games, I would play almost anything at least once, but if something really captured my interest, I would uh, repeatedly rent it from uh, the video connection, or I would just save up my allowance money and buy it. So um, I played a lot of games through the years, bought them borrowed them rented them um so narrowing this list down to 10 was no walk in the park not at all um just understand these are my own favorite 2600 games of course they're not numbered one to ten they're just the ones i feel that are the best and my personal favorites and of course my favorites will differ from yours you know if you think something is not on this list that you think should be hey get a hold of me you know the drill arcade brian at gmail.com Okay, let's get right into it. Uh, The Empire Strikes Back. This is, of course, one of my favorite uh, video games from my favorite movie in the Star Wars franchise. Uh, The game was a near-perfect description of what it must have felt like going up against the Imperial Adats in the Battle of Hoth. You fly fly a snowspeeder against them and you have to hit the walker a number of times with your laser without being shot down. Uh, Sometimes weak points would show on the walkers, and if you hit it with your laser, the walker was instantly destroyed. Also, you would become invincible for a time while the Star Wars theme played, which would help you with killing walkers. Um, Like I said, this game was a wonderful representation of my favorite movie in the Star Wars franchise. Okay, moving right along. Sea Quest. This is... Like I said, trying to number these from 1 to 10 would be near impossible. Um, I remember the first time I rented this game from the video connection and I was hooked instantly from the very first time I played it. Um, you are a submarine trying to rescue divers from sharks and enemy subs. Uh, as the game goes on, you, the game increases in speed as you complete levels or you go up to the surface to replenish your oxygen. Um, it becomes a major challenge to your skill um, in fairly short order. Um, This is my favorite Activision game without a doubt and every time I fire up my uh, 2600 emulator I play this one more often than not. Um, Let's see Dolphin. Um, This is another one of my favorite Activision games. You're a dolphin being chased through the sea by a giant squid. You have to avoid obstacles that slow you down, and find earth, ocean currents to speed you up to stay ahead of the squid long enough for a bird to come flying through the air. You have to jump up uh, out of the water to eat it, and that gives you the ability to defeat the squid and complete the level. The game is harder than it looks. Uh, trust me on that, but it's a lot of fun once you learn you know the ins and outs of it. Space Master X7. Um, This is one of the best shooters for the 2600, bar none. If I was masochistic enough and actually tried to uh, put these in uh, order of preference, this game would have to be number one. Um, I play it the most, and I have the most fun with it. You pilot a ship that can fire in 8 directions, and you go up against a base a la Star Castle with a moving and rotating energy shield and a myriad of enemies. Uh, Your goal is to destroy the base in the middle by shooting through the moving gaps in the shield and reduce the energy level of the base from positive to negative. As the game goes on, the shield moves and rotates faster. The base generates additional shields to block your shots. The enemies get faster and more aggressive, and the game becomes a true fight for survival. Um, Yeah, this game I've always loved, and of course if i love a game enough i will buy it this was part of my 2600 cartridge collection for sure you know it's just a a great game it's hard but not impossibly so and you know i think the furthest i've gotten in that game was like stage what 35 or something like that but yeah Um, I can't remember the score that I put up, but yeah, it was upwards of 300,000 or something like that. Okay, Star Trek Strategic Operations Simulator. Now, you heard me gush about the arcade game. This was a worthy adaptation of it. I was pleasantly surprised, almost shocked, that uh, Sega could put out such a really good uh, translation of the arcade game. Um like the like the RK game, you're in charge of the Enterprise, protecting star bases and shooting down Klingons attacking you and your star bases. Uh, aside from taking on Nomad at the end of the sector, there was also a challenging stage where you had to fly around meteor showers to reach the star bases in order to replenish your shield energy, torpedoes, and warp drive. Sega absolutely knocked it out of the park with its adaptation. Um and yeah, I played it in emulation fairly recently and yeah it's a lot of fun but yeah it gets really hectic uh once you get into like what sector four or sector five things like that but it's a lot of fun enduro uh this is another one of my favorite titles by activision um the gameplays like the arcade game turbo by sega um you are driving a car in an enduro race trying to get to the next stage by passing a certain number of cars before reaching the next day. This game was absolutely revolutionary when it came out in 82, and it's still challenging and rewarding to this day. Um, Another game I play in emulation, and the funny part is I'm better at it now than I was back when I was, what, 13? And I was pretty good at this game actually. I could have gotten uh, the Activision patch for this game, but I didn't have the resources to take pictures of the uh, TV screen in order to send them confirmation that I may, you know, uh, accomplish what they're setting out, whether it be a score or a certain stage or whatever it is. But yeah, Enduro is one of the best racing games for the 2600, bar none. I would almost say the absolute best, but, I mm, yeah, I don't. I'm not given to hyperbole right now. <laughs> uh, Ms. Pac-Man. All right. Um, don't at me, but I honestly feel that if Atari had contracted GCC to make the translation of Pac-Man like they did Ms. Pac-Man, the crash of '83 might not have been as severe because the uh, port of Pac-Man, or should I say the sad attempt at a port of pac-man was a massive disappointment when it came out in 82 um and it was a huge contributor to the crash along with et you know atari made some really bad decisions in the early 80s and yeah i've ranted about that so i'm not going to go into it but yeah this was a fantastic adaptation of the arcade classic of course the mazes are different but you know the goals are still the same but yeah, Ms. Pac-Man was a great one, and yeah, that was a part of uh, part of my collection as well. Uh, River Raid, <laughs> this game was absolutely wonderful. I could go into the why's and wherefores, but Vic Sage did a uh, a rundown of River Raid um, several months ago on his podcast, um, Diary of an Arcade Employee, and like I said, that's one of the major Uh, influences on this show but yeah i mean this was a wonderful game and yeah and this was another game that made it into my collection (laughs) sensing a theme here folks um but yeah um you know carol shaw made something that was just fantastic almost transcendent um as we all know in the early 80s you know the Game developers are getting marginally better at putting out decent 2600 games, but there are some that just were not worth the, you know, the microprocessors and the uh, plastic casing that it was uh, put in. Um, But yeah, Carol Shaw deserved every little piece of credit she ever got for this game, and that's the truth. Um, Activision was ever since once they came out in 82, they were on fire. They just had hit after hit after hit after hit. you know it's just awesome uh, missile command. This was a worthy translation to the arcade game with you know minor with some differences. Uh, you had only one missile base instead of three and there weren't uh, killer satellites and bombers coming out to you know make your job harder which is unfortunate they should they should have been there to be honest but that's just me um the you know like i yeah like i said the 2600 wasn't quite powerful enough to represent all the challenges the arcade game had or even the uh atari family of computers the 400 and the 800 um whenever i would see those games you know on display somewhere of course i'd play them um missile command was one of the first actually it was the first uh cartridge that I got. Um because when I got my a twenty six hundred in Christmas eighty one, I've already told the story there. Um I got uh Space Invaders, but I conned my mother into buying me a copy of Missile Command. I don't know how it happened. I think it was like mid year nineteen eighty two or early 1982 when I asked her to buy it for me and I think the price had come down on it I think it was under 20 bucks so you know my mother didn't balk so much at purchasing it but yeah um, this was one of the first games I got after Space Invaders like I said Uh, Space Invaders was boring to me especially after I learned the uh, uh, power switch reset uh, trick which doubled the firepower of your base So, that made the game almost boring, you know, but it is what it is. Um, let's see, Asteroids. Um, Space Invaders and Asteroids, these two games were, like, right on the, uh, edge of of breaking the top ten. One was going to make it, I just had to figure out which one it was. Um, but yeah, this game edged out Space Invaders by the slimmest of margins. Um... Although I do have to admit when I got Asteroids I liked it more than Space Invaders because once I knew what I was doing you know there was just a lot more of a challenge I mean I don't know when they made Space Invaders and Asteroids I think those two games are have the number the highest number of variant games within the cartridge Asteroids has 66 Space Invaders. If I'm not mistaken, it has 112. You know, it's just ridiculous how many different variations of the game you can enter into, uh, you know, when you're looking for a different kind of challenge from the game. But yeah, I loved Asteroids. Um, You know, and it's just one of the all time best 2600 games, in my opinion. Uh, let's see, uh, honorable mentions. Um, like I said, I could easily have put, like, 30, maybe even as many as 40 games on this list, but I limited myself to 15, and I will just name them. Because I'll be here all night waxing poetic about each one. Okay, uh, Vanguard, Phoenix, um, GCC made both of those. They were fantastic adaptations of the, uh, arcade game for the 2600. Uh, Space Invaders, of course. Chuck Norris' Super Kicks is one of my favorite games. I think I've rented that out from Video Connection like, oh my goodness, I'd say at least three times, if not more. Um, Defender, uh, Stargate, Demon Attack, Moonsweeper, Solar Fox, Hero, Mega Mania, Night Stalker, Pitfall, Yars Revenge, and Super Challenge Baseball. You know, all these games I either have owned or I played you know, a ridiculous number of times, and every time that I go into my emulator and I'm just messing around to try to figure out what game I want to play, one of these 25 games will come up. <laughs> As a matter of fact, my son's first video game that he played was Mega Mania. <laughs> so yeah, those are my top 10s with honorable mentions. Um, questions? Comments? Is there a game that you love that you should... That, you think should be on this list hey get a hold of me Brian at gmail.com all right moving right along let's go into are you experienced i'm too old for this Harding in front seats like a teenager Hoppy, oh, I think I'm getting too old for this stuff I'm getting too old for this Listen, you was born too old for this I'm getting too old for this You're getting too old for this Lying like red in the heather, chasing other man's cattle I'm getting too old for this sort of thing Maybe we are getting too old for this what do you think, huh? I'm not too old for this shit. I'm not too old for this shit. You will we're not. No, we're we're not, not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. like you believe We're not too old for this shit. not too old for this shit. I'm not going to buy a hemorrhoid We're not too old for this shit. Okay, are you experienced? Dungeons & Dragons Shadow over Mystara. Um, I did cover Tower of Doom, which was the first game in this two-game series. Um, I did that in episode 29, and of course, because you know my mind tends to think that way, I decided to go into shadow over Mistar uh, immediately afterwards. So yes, let's get right along with it and go to Wikipedia. Okay. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons Shadow over Mistara is an arcade game developed and published by Capcom in 1996 as a sequel to Dungeons and Dragons Tower of Doom. The game is set in the Dungeon Dra- Dungeons and Dragons campaign setting of Mistara. Combining side-scroll gameplay of a beat-em-up with some aspects found in a role-playing video game, Shadow over Mistara has many game mechanics not commonly found in arcade games, such as finding and equipping new gear, earning new spells as the player gains experience. Uh, Players can wield a a large variety of weapons and armor, although the selection is limited by the character the player chooses. There's also an extensive assortment of magical and hidden items in the game, many of which are completely unknown to exist to the typical video gamer. That's true. I didn't know anything about uh, a lot of the hidden items and weapons until um, actually I played a four-player game on Xbox Live and All three of these players knew exactly where they were going, and I was just along for the ride. Uh, But anyway, to continue. Um, This, along with uh, the addition of multiple endings and forking paths, gives the game much replayability and has led to a cult following among fans of the genre. It was one of the last 2D arcade side-scrollers created by Capcom. Only Battle Circuit in 1997 came after Shadow over Mistara. The game has seen two home releases as part of the compilations Dungeons & Dragons Collection, published for the Sega Saturn in 1999, and Dungeons and & Dragons Chronicles of over, of Misara, made available on the Nintendo eShop, PlayStation Network, Xbox Live Arcade, and Steam in 2013. Now, see, I might have I might be tempted to go and get it off of Steam, even though I have it on my Xbox 360. Okay. Um, in addition to the four original heroes found in the predecessor, uh, Shadow over Mystara adds a thief and a magic user to the selection. Furthermore, with the inclusion of two separate versions of each character sprite set, the game allows up to two players to select the same character. Tower of Doom, each of the characters could only be selected once, effectively giving the game 12 different quote unquote, characters to choose from. The two clerics and the two magic users have subtle differences within their spell books. Uh, The controls use four buttons, attack, jump, select, which brings up a small inventory ring around the character, allowing the character to choose what item is set in the use slot and the use button. The cleric, elf, and magic user also have two extra rings for their spells, with the jump button used to switch from ring to ring. While the game uses the same kick harness as the previous game, the select and use buttons are reversed. Uh, Shadow Over Mistara also introduced a selection of special moves which are executed by moving the joystick and tapping the buttons in certain combinations in a way similar to the Street Fighter series. The characters, except for the magic user, have a dashing attack as well as a rising attack which can be used to combo monsters or even juggle them in the air. Most characters again with the exception of a magic user and also cleric, have a mega crush, a move common to nearly all of Capcom's side-scrollers, which damages all enemies standing close enough to the character, but in turn damages the player themselves. Players, as they fight their way through each level, will come across an assortment of treasure. Treasure is found in chests stolen from monsters, dropped from dead enemies, and bosses, or even found simply lying on the ground. Most of the treasure is gold and silver, which is used to buy simple items in the shops, or precious gems, which add to a hero's experience points. Other treasures include weapons and equipment. Um, Treasure is found on the ground and is picked up by standing near it and pressing the attack button. Due to this feature, characters that stand too close to loot while fighting will instead bend down to retrieve the nearby item. It was very difficult to fight monsters in rooms full of treasure in Tower of Doom, and Capcom addressed these complaints with the addition of sliding. This allows the players to automatically pick up any treasure and equipment as a hero slides over it, quickly clearing the area of items. Uh, The game offers a small selection of arcane magic, available to the magic user and elf, and divine, divine magic, available to the cleric. Instead of a magic point system, the characters, characters use d and magic system, where a certain amount of each spell is ready to cast. Extra uses of this spell can be picked up off the ground, represented graphically as scrolls of paper, or occasionally recharged after certain boss fights. When a spell is cast, the entire game is momentarily paused, during which the spell effect is played out. Some spells can be controlled during this time. Each Every character starts, starts with their armor... Already filled, specific to the character, and remains unchanged the entire game. The character's helmet and shield are the other two items that lend to a character's defensive ability. Most characters also begin with a shield, except for the magic user and thief, who, which cannot use shields. While magic items in traditional D&D rules are practically invulnerable or tough, the magic items in Shadow Over Mistara are very fragile. Magical boots, gauntlets, ring, and rings are all destroyed after the player is damaged a few times. The 8th slot is used for miscellaneous items such as Skin of the Displacer Beast or Eye of the Beholder. Many bosses drop rare items such as these and they either grant special abilities or can be traded in for special magical equipment. There are many unique hidden items. For example, here hidden near the end of the game is a treasure chest which contains the staff of wizardry when opened by the magic user. If the magic user wields the staff during the final boss fight and there are at least 3 players with a combined total of over 1 million experience points, the staff will glow and the team, the team will be able to use the powerful final strike attack. Wow, I didn't know that. Um in between many stages the player find themselves Inside small town stores where they can restock on common items such as arrows, burning oils, throwing daggers, and healing potions. Players can sell items for gold and also trade special items found during boss battles with shopkeepers to earn unique magical items. Uh, the players can also come across a special gnome village where the town folk beg to be saved from a chimera. Uh, Shadow over the mistari uh, contains a system which allows the players to name the characters. Abusing the system using methods involving a space as the first character of the name followed by a long string of repeated letters caused the game to become incredibly glitched giving the players powerful items in the beginning of the game. This exploit also has a nasty side effect of causing the game to have an incredible amount of visual bugs. For example, f- flickering sprites, missing sprites and mis- mistakes in the text. Uh, and often causes the game to reboot or, worse, freeze up. Uh, Arcade owners, unaware that the players themselves were the cause of the troubles, would often shut down the machine for repair or simply remove the game completely. Gamers on the internet, aware of these consequences, would often refuse to post instructions on how to activate the glitch. Revision 2 of the game prevented the use of this bug. A a less dangerous glitch, commonly known as Highlander Mode, allows the magic user and thief to become more or less immune to all damage. Players must simply swap their default headgear to use the exploit. Any magic user wearing a hood, which is the thief's default hat, or any thief that wears the magician's hat, cannot be killed from any standard damage in the game. The character will be reduced to one hit point but will not be killed. Some examples of the hot non-standard damage that can still drop the player below one hit point are bite attacks, breath weapons, treasure chest... Thredger, that's funny. Some examples of non-standard damage that can still drop the player below one hit point are bite attacks, breath weapons, treasure chests thrown by allies, and spells. The bug was never addressed in the arcade. Interesting. Uh, let's see. Uh, the plot is as follows. After defeating the Archlitch Demos, the heroes continued on their journey through the broken lands of Glantry, after realizing that Demos was only part of an even greater evil plan, and he was in fact being used as a mysterious by a mysterious sorceress named Sin. Sin, who appears to be a young woman but commands incredibly powerful magical abilities, has been scheming to control the kingdom of Glantry and conquer the humanoids of the Republic of Derekin. But now that Demos has been defeated, Sin has vowed to punish the land that she desired. At the game's end, the player discovers that Sin is in fact a centuries-old red dragon, uh, bent on her harnessing the mystical forces of the land she has conquered, in order to awaken a creature of even more devastating physical prowess than herself, known and described only as the Fiend. The heroes that fight against Sin in her lair, where she is slain, her monster is also destroyed by an airship bombing. Uh, After the heroes beat the final boss, each member of the group is treated to a short epilogue detailing his or her future exploits. Endings are titled with a simple code. The first level of the character class followed by the number of the ending. Therefore, the cleric's second ending is called C2. The fighter's best ending is named F1, and so forth. There are four separate endings per character class, and the hero earns an ending based on multiple factors that are specific to the character's class above uh, the third ending. With the exception of the Dwarf and Cleric, characters can receive a third level ending if they have collected at least 3,000 silver pieces. All character classes have a message based on having struck the final blow to sin, but it is not always their first ending. Several classes have endings based on beating the game while wielding a weapon, or simply having it in their inventory, including the battle axe, the sling, or the sword of legend, among others. Higher numbered endings can be achieved without meeting the requirements for lower number endings. (laughs) Interesting. Let's see, let's go to the characters. Uh, The cleric, default name, Grelden slash Miles. The cleric's role is to be the party's healer and buffer, but he is also a formidable warrior, possessing the best rushing attack in the game. He also has the ability to turn undead, instantly destroying skeletons and ghouls, and can cast from a large library of clerical spells that can heal, strengthen allies, and debilitate or damage enemies. In line with the classic Dungeons & Dragons rules, the cleric cannot wield any weapon that is bladed. However, he can wield a spiked morning star from which he gains new special attacks. Dwarf. Default name is Dimsdale Hendel. Uh, the dwarf is a hardy character that has the most hit points in the game and is able to deal the most physical damage in a short amount of time. His short stature allows him to safely pass under enemy projectiles. The dwarf has strengths that lie in his special attacks rather than his normal attacks. He also has a unique ability to bash open treasure chests to reveal the extra gold and treasure. The Elf, default name Lucia slash Kayla. Uh, the Elf is a female fighter mage combining the offense of a fighter with the spells of a magic user. Although her capabilities and such are less powerful than uh, that of the fighter or magic user respectively, she remains a versatile and useful character. Her disadvantages are a low constitution defense and the shortest melee weapon reach in the game. The Elf Attacks hitbox remains the same and is not improved even when using weapons longer than her default short sword. Much like the Dwarf, she reaches her maximum level fairly early in the game, which gives her an early advantage, but just as well halts her progression abruptly and reduces the effectiveness of consumable magic items such as the Bottle of the Efreet. Very interesting, because I always liked playing the Elf in these games. Fighter. Default name Crassus slash Jared. The fighter is a melee character with an excellent moveset, long weapon reach, high endurance, and the best armor class, making him suitable for beginners and experts alike. He can wield nearly every weapon in the game, including the two-handed sword, and is the only character with the ability to dual-wield with a short sword in his offhand. The Sword of Legends item in the game is named after the highest-ranking fighter in the high scores. That's interesting. Okay... The magic user default name Sius slash Deraven. The magic user is a master of devastating spells, but is physically the weakest character in the game. As such, he is quick to die when played by novices due to his low constitution and relatively weak melee abilities. To offset his low amount of health, the character has a useful teleportation move, which allows him to dodge all physical attacks and can be used to perform elaborate and damaging combos by experienced players. Um, along with a spell that grants him temporary invulnerability. The magic user is a difficult but rewarding character to use that requires previous knowledge of the game and effective management of his spells. His offensive spells are greatly enhanced by the staff of wizardry, argu- arguably making him the most powerful character in the game. And last but not least is the thief, uh, default name Mariah Shannon. The female thief is a quick and dexterous warrior with many unique acrobatic skills such as the double jump, wall jump, backflip, and leap across the screen. She has the ability to pick locks, detect traps, pickpocket enemies, and even backstab enemies for severe damage. The thief also has an unlimited supply of rocks to sling with and utilizes flax of burning oil in some of her special attacks. However, she suffers defensively due to her moderate constitution and lack of a shield. The Thief has the highest maximum level in the game, and thus benefits the most from consumable magic items such as the bottle of the Efreet, that increase in effectiveness with the character's level. Okay. Players, upon the completion of the first stage, are prompted to enter a character name. Unlike many games at the time which only allow a person to enter three letters, Shadow over Mystaria has space for six. The game provides a default name for each of the characters. The default name is also automatically used if the player tries to submit a blank name or use vulgarity. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Okay, uh, Dungeons & Shadow over Mystara has been very well received. In Japan, Game Machine listed the game on their April 1, 1996 issue as being the sixth most, most successful arcade game of the year, outperforming such titles such as Soul Edge and Fighting Vipers. On release, a reviewer for Next Generation said, quote, it is full of the stuff that is that made the first so fun, end quote. He further said that the game had refined Dungeons & Dragons Tower of Doom, improving the animation quality to X-Men Children of the Atom level, expanding the number of playable characters, adding more stage branches and endings to create deeper gameplay and story, and incorporating more interesting character abilities such as wielding two swords. Despite this, he only gave it 3 out of 5 stars. Uh, Wataru Maruyama of Video Games praised the game's quote-unquote astounding graphical details and called it Capcom's latest masterpiece. According to Alan Rauch of GameSpy in 2004, Shadow over Mistar was a stellar game back when arcades were still a good place to find the hottest games and it's still fun today. Uh, Spanish website Mary Station also gave it a positive retrospective outlook. Both Tower of Doom and Shadow over Mistara have since gained a cult following. Yeah, I believe that. Retro game ranked Dungeons & Dragons Shadow over Mistara as the 16th top retro arcade game. In 2011, GameSpy ranked the game as number 50 on their list of top arcade games, calling it, quote, one of the most purely entertaining titles ever released for any platform, end quote. In 2013, the title was ranked as the 18th top beat-em-up video game of all time by Heavy.com. Kotaku included it uh, amongst the best-looking beat-em-up games from the 16-bit era. IGM ranked Shadow over Mystara at number 9 on their list of the top 11 Dungeons & Dragons games of all time in 2014. So, yeah. Um, my thoughts on it and experiences? I played Shadow over Mystara in the arcade only a handful of times. Um, unfortunately, it came out right when arcades were starting to die in Orlando, Florida, right around 1996. Um, By this time, both fun machines had closed down. Um, The Fashion Square Mall arcade had closed down, and aside from going on Disney property, there weren't a lot of alternatives. I mean, um, Rocky's Replay was there, but, you know, it was, as I said in the arcade review for Rocky's, it was a decent place but yeah it had its shortcomings. Um, but yeah as far as what I think of the game um, I honestly didn't think Capcom could actually make a better game than Tower of Doom but they did. Um, now you had different characters to select and each character had better attack combos, there were more story branches and hidden, hidden paths to secret treasures and magic, magic items and the action was faster and much more challenging. Um, like I said, there were only one or two places I could play this game when I lived in Orlando, and I had to make sure I had several dollars for Continues. It had all of their fun, all the fun of its predecessor, but there was a lot more to it. And that's Shadow over Mystara in a, in a nutshell. Um, if you played this game and you're a d head like I am, um, by all means, let me know what you thought of it. ArcadeAddictBrian at gmail.com Okay, and we shall go into the last segment of our show, and that is Home Systems. There's no place like home. Screw you guys, I'm going home. This is not a game, Max. Screw you guys, I'm going home. Shall we play a game? Love to. Screw you guys, I'm going home. Clear I'm going home. Home Systems, the Sony PlayStation. <laughs> yeah, this this game is this system, I'm telling you. Okay, let's go right into Wikipedia once again. Uh, the Sony PlayStation, officially abbreviated as PS and commonly known as the PS1 or a code name PSX, is a home video game console developed and marketed by Sony Computer Entertainment. It was first released on December 3rd, 1994 in Japan, on September 9th, 1995 in North America, September 29, 1995 in Europe, and November 15, 1995 in Australia, and was the first of the PlayStation lineup of video game consoles. As a fifth generation console, the PlayStation primarily competed, competed with the Nintendo 64 and the Sega Saturn. The PlayStation was the first computer entertainment platform to ship over 100 million units, which it had reached nine years after its initial launch. In July of 2000, a redesigned slim version called the PS1 was released and replacing the original great console and named appropriately to avoid confusion with its successor, the PlayStation 2, which we will get to. (laughs) Make no mistake about that, guys. We're getting there. Okay, to continue. Uh, The PlayStation 2, which is backwards compatible with, with the PlayStation's DualShock controller and games, was announced in 1999 and launched in 2000. The last PS1 units were sold in late 2006 to early 2007, shortly after it was officially discontinued for a total of 102 million units shipped since its launch 11 years earlier. Games for the PlayStation continued to sell until Sony ceased production of both PlayStation and PlayStation games on March 23, 2006, over 11 years after it had been released, and less than a year before the debut of the PlayStation 3. Yeah, how about that? Uh, On September 9, 2018... Uh, Sony unveiled the PlayStation Classic to mark the 24th anniversary of the original console. The new console is a miniature recreation of the original PlayStation preloaded with 20 titles released on the original console and was released on December 3rd, 2018, the exact date the console was released in Japan in 1994. Okay, let's do some history here. Uh, Let's see, the inception of what became the release PlayStation dates back to 1986 with a joint venture between Nintendo and Sony. Nintendo had already produced floppy disk technology to complement cartridges in the form of the family computer disk system and wanted to continue this complementary storage strategy for the Super Famicom. Nintendo approached Sony to develop a CD-ROM add-on tentatively titled the PlayStation or SNES CD. A contract was signed and work began. Nintendo's choice of someone they had worked with before, Ken Kutaragi, who was later called the father of the PlayStation, was the individual who had sold Nintendo on using the Sony SPC-700 processor for use as the 8-channel ADPCM sound set in the Super Famicom console console. Oh, through an impression de- impressive demonstration of the processor's capabilities. Kutaragi was nearly fired by Sony because he was originally working with Nintendo on the side without Sony's knowledge while still employed by Sony. Yeah, you might you might lose your job because of that. Uh, it was then CEO Noyo Oga, or excuse me, Norio Oga, who recognized the potential in Kutaragi's chip and in working with Nintendo on the project. OGA kept Kudaragi on at Sony, and it was not until Nintendo canceled the project that Sony decided to v- develop its own console. Sony also planned to develop a Super NES-compatible Sony-branded console, but one which would be more of a home entertainment system playing both Super NES cartridges and a new CD format which Sony would design. This was also to be the format used in SNES CDs, giving a large degree of control to Sony despite Nintendo's leading position in the video gaming market. The plot thickens. The product under the name PlayStation, two words uh, was to be announced at the May 1991 Consumer Electronics Show. However, when Nintendo's Hiroshi Yamauchi read the original 1988 contract between Sony and Nintendo, he realized that the earlier agreement essentially handed Sony complete control over any and all titles written on the SNES CD-ROM format. Yamauchi decided that the contract was totally unacceptable and he secretly canceled all plans for the joint Nintendo-Sony SNES CD attachment. Instead of announcing a partnership between Sony and Nintendo at 9 a.m. on the day of CES, Nintendo chairman Howard Lincoln stepped onto the stage and revealed that Nintendo was now allied with Philips, and Nintendo was planning on abandoning all previous work Nintendo and Sony had accomplished. Lincoln and Minoru Arakawa had, unbeknownst to Sony, flown to Philips' global headquarters in the Netherlands and formed an alliance of of a decidedly different nature. One that would give Nintendo total control over its licenses on Philips machines. Wow, (laughs) this this is like (laughs) this is like corporate soap opera the whole way. After the collapse of the joint Nintendo project, Sony briefly considered allying itself with Sega to produce a standalone console. The Sega CDO CEO at the time, Tom Kalinske, took the proposal to Sega's board of directors in Tokyo, who promptly vetoed the idea. Kalinski, in a 2013 interview, recalled them saying, quote, That's a stupid idea. Sony doesn't know how, how to make hardware. They don't know how to make software either. Why would we want to do this? End quote. This prompted Sony into halting their research, but ultimately the company decided to use what it had developed so far with, with both Nintendo and Sega to make it into a complete console based on the Super Famicom. As a result, Nintendo filed a lawsuit claiming breach of contract and attempt and attempted in U.S. federal court to obtain an injunction against the release of what was originally christened the PlayStation again two words um, on the grounds that Nintendo owned the name. The federal judge presiding over the case denied the injunction, and in ni- October 1991, the first incarnation of the aforementioned brand new game system was revealed. However, it is theorized that only 200 or so of these machines were ever produced. Yeah, I've seen pictures of that PlayStation, two words, um, and it's really interesting to look at. I would love to see what actually that thing was capable of doing, just out of curiosity. To continue, by the end of 1992, Sony and Nintendo reached a deal whereby the PlayStation, two words, Uh, would still have a port for SNES games, but Nintendo would own the rights and receive the bulk of the profits from the games, and the SNES would continue to use the Sony-designed audio chip. However, Sony decided in early 1993 to begin reworking the PlayStation, two words, concept to target a new generation of hardware and software. As a part of the process, the SNES cartridge port was dropped, and the space between the name, play, and station was removed, becoming PlayStation. One word, Uh, thereby ending Nintendo's involvement with the project. According to a Sony engineer, all work on the console from the time of the partnership with Nintendo was eventually scrapped and the PlayStation design was restarted from scratch. Wow. Sony's North American division, known as Sony Computer Entertainment America, or SCEA, originally planned to market the new console under the alternative branding PSX, following negative feedback regarding PlayStation, one word now, in focus group studies. Uh, Early advertising prior to the console's launch in North America referenced PSX, but the term was scrapped before launch. The console was not marketed with Sony's name in contrast to Nintendo's consoles, according to Phil Harrison. Much of Sony's upper management feel, feared that the Sony brand would be tarnished by connecting it with the console, which they considered to be a quote-unquote toy. Whew. Man. <laughs> uh, let's see, to continue... Uh, according to SE's producer, Ryoji Akagawa, and chairman Shigeo Maruyama, there was uncertainty over whether the console should primarily focus on 2D sprite graphics or 3D polygon graphics. It was only after witnessing the success of Sega's Virtual Fighter in Japanese arcades that, quote, the direction of the PlayStation became instantly clear, end quote, and 3D polygon graphics became the console's primary focus. Wise idea. <laughs> I And I just said in the previous episode talking about uh, best arcade games of, what, 1993 uh, when Virtual Fighter came out. Yeah, it was revolutionary in a lot of ways, but to continue. Um, since Sony had no experience in game development and managers knew about it, the company turned to third-party developers... Uh, with support from Namco, Konami, and Williams, as well as 250 other development teams in Japan alone, the company secured the launch of new games such as Ridge Racer Ridge Racer, and Mortal Kombat 3. In, atten- in addition, Sony bought the European company Psygnosis for $48 million US and renamed it Sony Interactive Entertainment, which began developing games for the future console, including Wipeout and Destruction Derby. And I always wondered what happened to Cygnosis. Because in the late 80s going into the 90s, they had a really good reputation as uh, a, a video game company. Now I know. To continue, uh, the purchase of Cygnosis also brought other benefits to the company, including a dedicated game development kit for the console. With the help of Cygnosis, SN Systems was publishing software development tools called PsyQ. PSY-Q. Initially, Sony planned to use its own game development kit based on the expensive R4000 processor. However, Andy Beveridge and Martin Day, owners of SN Systems, built a prototype of the development tool which used an ordinary personal computer and showed it to the representatives of Sony at the Winter CES in 1994. Sony executives liked the alternative and the company helped SN Systems with condensing the development kit on two PC extension boards. Industry hype for the console spread quickly, and in early 1994, GamePro reported that, quote, many video game companies feel that in the near future, the video game platforms to contend with will be from Nintendo, Sega, and Sony. (laughs) Yeah. As in, they were shocked that Sony was putting their hat in the ring. Okay. Going on to the launch of the system. PlayStation went on sale in Japan on December 3rd, 1994, a week after the release of its rival Sega Saturn, at a price of 39,800 yen. Sales in Japan began with a stunning success, with long lines in stores, and it sold 100,000 units on its first day, and then 2 million units after 6 months on the market. That's what you call a success, for sure. Uh, after a while a gray market emerged for the consoles which were shipped from japan to the us and europe and buyers of such consoles paid large amounts of money in the range of 700 pounds british or excuse me 700 british pounds sterling which back then was about about 1500 dollars us <laughs> yeah that's where that started but okay to continue uh, before the release in North America, Sega and Sony presented their game consoles at the first Electronic Entertainment Expo conference held in May 1995. First, Sega announced its Saturn console and announced that it would be released with a at a price of $399 US. Immediately after that, Olaf Olaf's son head of Sony Computer Entertainment America, summoned Steve Race, head of development, to the conference stage, who said $299 and left the audience with a round of applause. Oh, so, 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 so cutthroat. The attention to the Sony conference was also attracted by the appearance of Michael Jackson and the showcase of games for the console, Wipeout, Ridge Racer, and Tekken. In addition, Sony announced that Ridge Racer would not be bundled with the console as previously expected. Uh, In North America, the PlayStation went on sale on September 9, 1995 at the previously announced price of $299. There were over 100,000 pre-orders and 17 games available on the market by the time of launch. The launch was a success, and stores were reportedly running out of consoles and accessories. Yeah... I was working at a Best Buy at the time. (laughs) I can kind of attest to that. Um, Sales of the console in the U.S. amounted to 800,000 units, giving the PlayStation a commanding lead over the other 5th generation consoles, though the Super NES and Sega Genesis from the 4th generation still outsold it. At the same time, according to the president of SCEA, the attach rate of sold games and consoles was 4 to 1. The console was marketed with the advertising slogans, Live in Your World, Play in Ours, and it was stylized with the uh, icons for the four different buttons on the controller. The slogan, You Are Not Ready, was also used (laughs) briefly as stylized as U, capital U, capital R, not in all caps, R E, E, but it was a ready. (laughs) How clever little too clever if you ask me. Um, Regarding the second one, Sony's CCO Lee Klo explained that it's the ultimate challenge. Gamers love to respond to that tagline and say bullshit. Let me me show you how ready I am. (laughs) He was right. Um, Critics generally welcome the, the new console. The staff of Next Generation reviewed the PlayStation a few weeks after its North American launch, where they commented that while the CPU is "quote unquote" fairly average, the supplementary, supplementary custom hardware, such as the GPU and sound processor, is stunningly powerful. They praised they praised the PlayStation's focus on 3D and complimented on the comfort of its controller and the convenience of its memory cards, giving the system four and a half out of five stars. They concluded to succeed in this extremely cutthroat market you need to you need a combination of great hardware great games and great marketing whether by skill luck or just deep pockets Sony has scored three out of three in the first salvo of this war End quote in a special game machine cross review in May 1995 Famicom Sushin scored the PlayStation console a 19 out of 40 <laughs> Wow. Let's go to the software library, because this is rather important. At least I think it is. Okay, as of June 30th, 2007, 7,918 software titles had been released worldwide for the PlayStation, counting games released in multiple regions as separate titles. As of March 31st, 2007, the cumulative software shipment was at 962 million units. Wow, that's close. That's almost a billion. Jeez. Um, FIFA Football 2005 was the last game released for the system in the United States. However, several reprinted and remastered editions were released in later years. On July 26, 2007, Konami released Metal Gear Solid, The Essential Collection, which contained Metal Gear Solid in the original PlayStation format. In 2011, Capcom released the Resident Evil 15th Anniversary Collection, and in 2012, Square Enix released the Final Fantasy 25th Anniversary Ultimate Box in Japan, containing all of the Final Fantasy titles, a majority of which were in the original PlayStation format. Initially in the United States, PlayStation games were packaged in long cardboard boxes, similar to the non-Japanese 3DO and Saturn games. Sony later switched to the jewel case format, typically used for audio CDs and Japanese video games, as this format took up less retailer shelf space, which was at a premium due to the large number of PlayStation games being released, and focus testing showed that most customers preferred this format. And I have games in both formats. Alright, and we'll just do the legacy. Sony Computer Entertainment was an upstart in the video game industry in late 1994 as the early 1990s were both dominated by Nintendo and Sega. Nintendo had been the clear leader in the video game industry since the introduction of the NES in 1985, and the Nintendo 64 was initially expected to maintain this position for Nintendo. (laughs) No, it wasn't. Uh, The PlayStation's target audience included 15 to 17-year-olds who were not the primary focus of Nintendo, and 18 to 29-year-olds, and I fell into that second category, (laughs) Um, who represented the first generation to grow up playing video games. By late 1990, Sony became a highly regarded console brand due to the PlayStation, with a significant lead over 2nd place Nintendo, while the Sega was relegated to a distant third. The PlayStation's lead in installed base and development support paved the way for the success of the next-generation PlayStation 2, which overcame an early launch of, from the Sega Dreamcast, then fended off competition from the Microsoft, Xbox, and the Nintendo GameCube and there is more to read on the PlayStation the original PlayStation but I think I covered most of the uh, bases. so my experiences with this um, when the system came out it was a quantum leap of what was possible in home gaming if you did not own a PC I was working in a Best Buy in 1995 and I was transferred from the computer department to the media department which was movies music and you guessed it video games Uh, I would sort the games, sell them, and answer questions and see about buying games for myself. Um, For example, I got uh, Street Fighter Alpha at cost, which was a nice discount over list price. I think it was listed at like $32 or so, and I got it for $20 to $25. Gotta love employee discounts. And I still have it. (laughs) Um, The Nintendo 64 and the PS1 were in a rather pitched battle with the Sega Saturn bringing up the rear when it came out. Now, understand, I typed out these notes long before I read the Wikipedia, so how I felt back in 1995-1996 was... uh, it was accurate as to the uh, actual representation of... Of those times, you know, it's actually nice to know that, you know, what I felt was correct. Uh, It was a shame uh, about the Saturn because their games were absolutely gorgeous. I love them. Uh, Sony became something of a juggernaut in this time, and it will only gain momentum when the PlayStation 2 came out. This was now Sony's time, and there was precious little to get in its way. Uh, the game that pushed the PS1 into the stratosphere was when Final Fantasy came out in 1997, which is arguably one is one of, if not the greatest, video game role-playing game of all time. Um, people were buying up PS1s and copies of that game in droves. Um, if I remember correctly, I think Sony actually sold PS1s with Final Fantasy VII bundled as a with bundled in. Uh, the game at one point if I'm not mistaken I may be wrong about that um if anybody knows get a hold of me and let me know I want to know um there were mod mar- mod excuse me mod cards that you could plug in the back of the system so you could play Japanese imports along with the uh, the weighted uh, piece of metal on the door center and the disc swap trick you know i actually still have a couple of import games uh tokon retzuden 2 comes to mind um which was a uh wrestling game that i really really loved um as a matter of fact when you hear the uh bumper for top tens that's where that came from tokon retzuden 2 um so yeah if you were able to get one of those um one of those uh mods that you could plug in the back you could actually you could get japanese import games and be able to play them on your ps1 so that opened up another world in gaming um i still own my ps1 it still works um i think i have about 25 to 30 games for it um i put it in my storage closet uh when the playstation 2 came out as sony made the playstation 2 backwards compatible with all ps1 games um this game system is one of the all time greats and it paved the way for its bigger brother, the PlayStation two, which will we, which we will discuss in a future episode. Stay tuned. Um, that's the PlayStation one. Um, yeah, we will get into the PlayStation two, uh, very shortly. As a matter of fact, I'll let you know what, uh, I'll let you know what episode that's coming out. And I know I have it here. I'm just pulling up my, uh, Pulling up my uh, episode notes. And the PlayStation 2 will be coming out in episode, um, episode 33, as a matter of fact. So you don't have long to wait. Because I've got quite a bit to say about that, that's for sure. So yeah, that's the PlayStation 1. Uh, questions, comments... I know there are a few list listeners out there that had a PlayStation 1. Um, let me know what your experiences were with this game, what you thought of the games, and so forth. And, you know, if what I was saying to you is absolute, is correct, or if I'm full of crap, <laughs> Frying at gmail.com. Okay, that's episode 30. So, looking ahead to episode 31, we have Storytime are you experienced time for some strategy and an on the road segment so i'm going to get this edited and hopefully posted by the beginning of next week it is now august 28th i'm hoping to have it out by the 31st and hopefully you guys will enjoy it and we'll see where we go from there so then this is brian saying have fun out there good gaming be safe be smart this has been the confessions of an arcade addict podcast all music has been provided by kevin mcleod you can find his music at incompetech.com you can contact the show by email at arcade at gmail.com or you can call and leave a voicemail at 734-743-2433 until next time you have been listening to the confessions of an arcade addict podcast see you then